Hey everybody, uh, welcome to this first ever inaugural You've Never Seen Us Together in This Kind of Format Before uh, podcast. It's Nevin Adams. I'm currently Chief Content Officer of the American Retirement Association, and I am thrilled to have my partner in crime here, none other than Mr. Fred Reich. Say hello, Fred. Hey, Nevin. Thank you very much, and hello, everybody. It's it's great to be with you all today, and I think we've got some interesting things to talk about. So, Nevin, kick us off. Yeah, we, sh- we sure do. Now, you know, like a week or so ago, I reached out to Fred. I was like, okay, so what do you want to talk about today? And he, he threw out at me uh, literally um, – a, a code reference, not a code reference, but, uh, but, and I'm like, what the heck is he talking about kind of thing? And, um, so to the, to the unwashed, the uninformed, the people who don't live in the lawyerly parts of the world, what Mr. Reese wanted to talk about was the investment advice regulation for fiduciaries. And it's got a long, what is it again, Fred, 2020 dash 02, 2021 uh, it rolls trippingly off the tongue, Nevin. 2020-02. If you say it often enough, you actually sing it. Uh, <laughs> but if you don't comply with it, it'll be a song of misery. So that's the message for today. Oh, there you go. Well, and then and then who knew that um, you'd throw that out there, and then the day before we get online to have a conversation about this, the Labor Department must have been listening in because they said, you know, Nevin and Fred are going to be talking about this, so let's roll out some frequently asked questions to uh, to give a little shape and substance to this regulation that's, uh, that's out there. So, hey, talk about timely, right? Yeah. Um, so... Um, you know, let's start with the basics, Fred. And if you look at what the Department of Labor put out um, this week, what uh, what's new? Well, uh, let me just even go back a step further. And, and you know, people may have heard of the reference to prohibited transaction exemption 2020-02 or 2020-02. And, uh, or they may have heard of a reference to the new fiduciary rule. Those are one and the same thing. And, and let me just explain what that is for a minute, Nevin, and, and we can get into uh, what, the, what the DOL has done since and what they might do in the future, because I don't, I don't think uh, the guidance issued uh, just a day or two ago is, is the end of the story. Uh, as I said, people call it a fiduciary rule, which is really a, a misnomer. It's not a rule, and it's not one thing. It's two things. Uh, the first thing is it's an expanded definition of who is a fiduciary. And folks will remember references to the old five-part test. Uh, now, I, I assume it's not going to come to a, as a surprise to anybody that there are five parts to the five-part test. <laughs> uh, and the DOL has interpreted them more expansively. They didn't write a new regulation. They explicitly said, hey, this is just the 1970s regulation. We're just interpreting it differently. Uh, and it, it, and the process of expanding the definition, a lot more people are going to be fiduciaries uh, under both ERISA and the Internal Revenue Code. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in more detail later. We're not going to leave you hanging. Uh, but then the second part, so number one is a definition, not a rule. There's already a regulation. This is just a expanded definition, but impactful. Uh, the other is the exemption. And, and what the exemption says is, you know, if you give fiduciary advice and you make money uh, off of that advice, for example, if I recommend that, Nevin, that you roll over your 401k account into an IRA with me as an advisor, I'll make some money off the IRA. 
but I, but due to a fiduciary recommendation, therefore it's a prohibited transaction. Therefore, I need an exemption. Exemption is just a fancy word in the in the Internal Revenue Code and ERISA for an exception. But exceptions come with conditions attached. And the, when you really get into the compliance side of the equation, you're talking about the conditions. Uh, this caught everybody off guard, Nevin. The, the, it was a Trump-era rule. Uh, they issued it so late it couldn't become effective till February 16th. We were all sure that the, DO, that the Biden administration, DOL, would say, we're going to kill that because we don't agree with the Trump-era rules. But then they surprised everybody. They made a determination that the uh, rule actually got them partway to where they wanted to go, that the rule actually had somewhat of a Democratic flavor coming out of a Republican administration. And so they let it become effective, catching everyone's off guard. So if you all haven't heard much about this yet, that's why. Nobody thought it would happen. Then it did happen on February 16th, and it applies to all the advice that you're giving today. So... Nevin, that's the overview. Uh, uh, obviously, that was uh, I left out more than a few details. <laughs> well, no, but you're right because this this has been a big issue. It's been out there for a long time. You remember it it came up and and consumed a lot of our time and focus, if you will, during the Obama administration. As you know, we had the the um, the prohibited transaction come out and be talked about, and there were a couple of hearings about it and going back and forth, and there was litigation. Uh, about it. In fact, litigation that sort of, you know, famously, infamously, depending on how you look at it, the Fifth Circuit basically sort of tossed it aside. And, you know, right at the at the end or the very beginning of the Trump administration and the Labor Department basically sort of let it let it lie there. And it was uncomfortable in some ways because there were a couple of pieces left over from that 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 people didn't really know how to deal with. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a lot on our minds and people trying to keep up. And um, big organizations have made seismic changes in how they do business in anticipation of what was supposed to happen, only for it not to happen exactly. Um, but to your point, nobody expected, um, I mean, everybody expected that the Trump administration might do something with it. Nobody expected that what they did with it would survive very long into the next administration. And in point of fact, even the FAQs yesterday, there's a pretty clear signal from the Department of Labor that um, while they let this take effect, and you know, and we can talk about why you think that might have happened, but but they clearly left the door open to indicate that that they do intend to keep working on this, um, but they intend for there to be that kind of process around it, hearings and and a chance for people to comment and things like that. So um, so. We've got we've got a starting point at least, um, yeah. and we can know that it's we're not done with it, but at least we can move forward. So yeah, I I, I agree. I, I think I mean I th the biggest surprise politically was that, frankly, that the Trump administration uh, issued a rule or, or a regulation and an interpretation, an exemption and an interpretation, that would be viewed so favorably by the Biden administration. I mean that that's really the shock of the shocks here, but, but it did. It, it, it reads very much like, a, um, like something a Democratic administration would have come up with initially, uh, getting halfway maybe to where they want to be. And, and just picking up on what you're saying about the Obama-era rule and the best interest contract exemption from that era, 
Uh, if you look at the rollover language in the Obama rule and, and in the best interest contract exemption, um, that was subsequently picked up by the SEC in regulation best interest, by and large, very much based on the Obama-era fiduciary rule. And now the DOL in this new exemption and interpretation picks up what the SEC did in Reg BI. And so it, it, it's, it, there is a coming together of the SEC rules and the DOL rules, except I don't want people to mistakenly believe I'm saying that they're the same. What happened is that the, the, the DOL took regulation best interest and put additional requirements on top of it. So they adopted much of it, and then they augmented it. So it, it's still going to be work. I don't want anybody to think, oh, gee, we're in compliance with Reg BI or, or similar rules, and, and therefore we don't have to worry about this. There, there, is, there are significant add-ons that folks are going to have to comply with. So, so still plenty of employment for ERISA lawyers. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes, I, I, I view this favorably, Nevin. Out of, <laughs> however, I do have to disclose as a conflict of interest, I am an ERISA lawyer. <laughs> and so I'm very busy doing this uh, work right now, in fact. I mean, seriously, uh, there, there are four financial institutions, which is the way that the rule is written, uh, that this applies to and that it gives some relief to as well. Uh, it applies to banks and trust companies, that's one category, uh, insurance companies, that's the second, broker-dealers, third, and investment advisors, fourth. Those are called financial institutions in the rule, and then their representatives are called investment professionals, and then the, uh, the people they give advice to that are covered by all of this are called retirement investors, and that includes plans, participants, and IRA owners. So. Don't think this is just about plans and participants and rollovers. It's not. It's also about advice to IRAs. And, and that the rollover part and the IRA part will be big changes going forward. Yeah, the, the IRA part was, was one of the, the big flags, if you will, back during the Obama administration and what, what they were doing. It was the sense that that they'd been kind of off limits, if you will, and the Labor Department was, was sort of trying to bring uh, the IRAs underneath their their purview, their umbrella, if you will, in the sense that, that the Labor Department had perhaps overreached. On the other hand, given how much of the IRA market actually started in the qualified plan market and given the potential, if you will, for mischief uh, by people looking to uh, pickpocket those savings and, and put them into an IRA, you can understand why the Labor Department would have, you know, looking out over the retirement security issues, might have said, you know what, we, we can't afford to sort of turn our uh, back on that and, and let that sort of just be disappearing uh, from sight. Um, but you're right, I think no. the IRA being part of this is, is a big change. I, I agree. I mean, if you if you think about it from a policy perspective, and you and you don't focus on what the act, whether you agree or disagree with the actual way the rule was done, uh, from a policy perspective, having people bubble wrapped by fiduciary protections from when they go to work in their twenties until they retire in their sixties, let's just say, uh, and and then say, okay, we're going to take you from institutional pricing, fiduciary quality and you're gonna to roll to an IRA with retail pricing and conflicts of interest and maybe a good advisor or maybe not a good advisor, and then that money's gonna to have to last you for 
on average, 20 years if you're a single person. If it's a husband and wife, maybe one of you will be alive 30 years after you retire. Uh, and how are we going to make that happen? There's a huge public policy interest in seeing the promise of 401k plans go continue through retirement and on until death. And how do you get the fiduciary protections? How do you mitigate the conflicts of interest? How do you get high quality and reasonable costs? That's what it's all about. Amen. Well, you know, and we talked about rollovers and, and this whole process of, of taking money from, if you will, a 401k um, or 43B and, and putting it into um, an IRA. And rollovers were uh, prominent in the FAQs, which I think is appropriate. And I know one of the concerns that we had had was that the old five-part test, um, you know, really sort of set it up so that if you were an advisor and you were working with a participant as a as a part of a 401k plan and helping them, helping them accumulate that nest egg and helping them make investment choices and saving the right amount and all that kind of stuff, and you get them all the way to the end of the uh, road and they're ready to either change employers or, or perhaps even just retire and you wanted to talk to them about that IRA move, you know, obviously that advisor who had been a fiduciary up until that point, that that was going to carry over into the decision to go into an IRA. And since an individual IRA has a different sort of economy, if you will, than, a, than part of a 401k, there are obviously going to be some fee differentials. On the other hand, if I'm an advisor and I'm just out there and I'm just, you know, looking for people who are getting ready to retire and I stumble across somebody, this participant in question, and I'm going to basically say to them, hey, why don't you let me help you take that money and invest it and we'll, we'll put it over here in an IRA. There was a, a pretty strong sense that that advisor was at a is an unfair advantage because that decision to go from the 401k into the IRA rollover didn't didn't fulfill the requirements of the five part test. So they they could make that uh, give that advice and it not be considered a fiduciary, um, not subject to the fiduciary restrictions that a, an advisor who worked in the plan would be. So how does that change now? I, I think that, first off, I think your point is a great one, Nevin. Uh, and, and in the preamble to the, to the uh, exemption, to 2020-02, see how it rolls off the tongue nicely right. after, after the you say it a bunch of times? Roll off mine, too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 2020-02, I just can't stop saying it. Uh, but in the preamble, it, it, it specifically revoked the advisory opinion you're talking about. And that advisory opinion said, if you're already a fiduciary to a plan and you make a fiduciary and you make a rollover recommendation to a participant, you're a fiduciary for that purpose too. But putting a higher standard of care on a person who was already adhering to a fiduciary standard and who probably had a lot of expertise in retirement-related issues, investing and the like. But it said, if you just somebody, if you just met someone on the street and they recommended you roll over with them. That wasn't a fiduciary. Well, what they said in the preamble was, all that's gone. We hereby revoke that old advisory opinion. We, com you're, uh, we completely change our position. Now, if you satisfy the five-part test, and the main issue is, do you provide advice on a regular basis? The other four parts are pretty easy to satisfy. Uh, so if you do you provide advice on a regular basis? And in the old guidance, the DOL said, well, no, if you just met somebody and recommended they roll over to an IRA, that was an isolated rollover recommendation. That doesn't make you a fiduciary. Their new way of looking at it says, well, if you – and I'm just going to give one example. There are actually more than that in the, in the, in the guidance. But the, most, the one that will impact the most people is 
if an advisor recommends, regardless of whether the advisor is also the advisor to the plan or not, if the advisor recommends that the participant roll over to an IRA where the advisor is going to provide ongoing uh, financial advice, that rollover recommendation will be connected or tacked to the continuing advice to the IRA, and it will all be deemed to be advice to retirement assets, and it makes the rollover recommendation a fiduciary recommendation. Uh, and actually, if you think about it, that puts the plan advisor at a practical advantage. Uh, legally, they're the same now, but uh, there's a practical advantage because one, there, there are four steps to a good best interest process, and the first step is obtain information about the investments, services, and expenses in the plan. Well, shoot, the person who's already an advisor to the plan knows all that. That's the hardest single step in terms of information gathering, where somebody who, an advisor who just met the participant has no connection with the plan, has to say, give me your uh, comparative investment chart, or give me your 404 or 5 disclosure, give me your quarterly statement. And what I hear from advisors is that, they, you know, that, that, that when you ask a participant for that, it looks like a deer in the headlights, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Now, so we have a whole system of disclosures, and, and, the, and the average participant response is, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, and, and I do believe that. I do believe that, that advisors are asking for it, and I do believe that they're getting, you know, that kind of a response. And so it, 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 in the real world, then, the plan advisor has a built-in advantage because they already have that information. That's a great point, and and thanks for bringing that up. It's something I had I hadn't gotten around to thinking about yet. I've been too busy trying to remember the code numbers. Um, that's awesome. Um, what else in this? I mean, aside from the fact that it's just a lot easier to read, um, is there anything else in this FAQ document specifically that you think um, advisors in particular need to be aware of, um, or maybe take a fresh look yeah. at? First off, I would recommend uh, that they get a copy of it, that they Google it, print it off, and, and read the whole thing. I, I, links uh, links but there's there on nepin-net.org. So. Oh, okay. Uh, one, uh, it, it is a great conversational summary of the major points in the preamble. Other, you could read you know, the fine print of the Federal Register page after page after page and walk away essentially with the same information. Uh, but that is a tedious way to get the information. This is actually well written, I think pretty conversational from my perspective, and it hits the main points. I, I didn't see any, I mean, having read the preamble language a bunch of times, nothing really leapt off the page at me that would be like, oh, gee, I didn't know that before from reading the preamble. So. Um, but it sure beats reading the preamble if you don't have to be, if you're not going to be an attorney advising people how to comply. So, oh, no. yeah, I, and, and in particular, look at question and answer 15, 1 5. That's the one on rollovers. Uh, and that will give you a sense of how demanding this new rule is going to be on rollover recommendations. For example, uh, it talks about what you should obtain and uh, you know, copies of and maintain in your records going forward. So, uh, if you're in the, if you do rollovers, which almost all advisors do, and particularly if it's a significant part of your business, you want to know about Q and A fifteen. No, that's a great point. Um, and the other thing that's interesting to me about this whole rollout process is they do have FAQs really designed for uh, participants. 
uh, retail investors on the process of selecting advisors as well. And, um, and I suspect that'll get some, um, some acknowledgement, some write-ups, uh, some tee-ups. And certainly, um, you know, I've always felt like an informed uh, individual, whether it's a, an individual or a plan sponsor, they're always the best clients in the world for, uh, for an advisor. So um, presumably that'll be of some, some help and assistance as well. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you know, we're talking mainly about how these rules impact advisors today, but I think it could also be in the best interest of plan sponsors to provide copies of that to their participants or for advisors, you know, high quality plan advisors to provide uh, copies to their participants of what best practices would be for selecting an advisor to help them with rollovers. Uh, I mean, it's in all of our best interest for participants to stand up in a good place, whether it's in the plan or out of the plan. So that would be, it's going to be helpful for that purpose. Absolutely. Um, anything else we want to say on this thing today, Fred? Yeah, yeah I think, uh, you know, I said that gathering information about the plan was the first step in a, in a prudent process for recommending a rollover. There are actually four steps between now and September 20th. Uh, and then a fifth step that comes into effect on September 20th. First, let me explain where September 20 comes from. Um, the DOL said in the preamble <clears throat> that they're going to extend their non-enforcement policy until September 20, and they won't enforce all of the requirements, all of the conditions and the exemption until September 21st. Well, the, but instead, you can comply with their non-enforcement policy, which the IRS has also agreed to. Essentially, it says if you adhere to the impartial conduct standards, and that's a phrase of art, uh, then we won't enforce the exemptions full conditions against you. The impartial conduct standards are that you act in the best interest of the participant, that you, that you get no more than reasonable compensation from the rollover IRA, for example, in a rollover scenario, and that you make no materially misleading statements. Uh, that the, so if you do that and, and, and your advice to retirement investors, and today we've mainly focused on, uh, on rollover recommendations, but it also applies to advice to plans, participants, and IRAs. Um, if you do that, then you can obtain, you, then you can recommend rollovers and, and satisfy the requirements until September 20th. Now, after September 20th, the impartial conduct standards remain as, as part of the requirements, but not all of them. And then you get into a bunch of others. For example, uh, you get to the fifth step. Okay, and, and they're more onerous. Let me come back to the first four steps, which are what, how do you satisfy the best interest standard of care in making a rollover recommendation? And this is a little bit simplified, but step one, as I already said, is obtain information about the investments, services, and expenses in the plan. Step two is consider the investments, services, and expenses in the rollover IRA that would be available to you to help the participant with. Step three is obtain the relevant information about the participant. Uh, you might think of it as their needs, their circumstances, and so on. Uh, or as a, and Reg BI calls it a retail customer investment profile, but, but information about the participant. So know the plan, know the IRA, know the participant. Step four is to analyze that reasonably and to make a recommendation that's in the best interest of the participant, not of the advisor, but of the participant. Uh, that's the, the, the best interest process between now and September 20. September 21st, the full uh, exemption 
and all of its conditions applies. And in that case, a fifth requirement comes in, which is to reduce to writing why it is in the best interest of the participant for them to roll over to an IRA with you and to provide that to the participant before the rollover is implemented. Uh, needless to say, that's going to have to be done really thoughtfully because, uh, for example, the SEC, which I'm sure the DOL agree with, agrees with, is just saying, uh, hey, uh, the fact that the plan only has 30 or 40 investments and the IRA has access to 15,000 investments in and of itself isn't a good enough reason. So if that's what your writing says, you could get in trouble. You, have to, you would have to then go on and say, and the following types of investments would provide additional value to the participant if they rolled over. Maybe a hedge fund or private equity funds to a $2 million rollover. But it's sort of hard to say that private equity would be really valuable to a $50,000 rollover. So it's going to have, you know, my whole point, I'm just giving one example, but Nevin, my whole point is it's going to have to be done thoughtfully because once you reduce something to writing, you know, with your legal background and my legal background, we know that that's going to be the first thing scrutinized by somebody on the other side who wants to show you did something wrong. So it's, that's, it's that's what, going to be known, critical. It's what's known in legal parlance as a smoking gun. So Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, Fred, anyway, I just wanted to walk through that. Yeah. No, that's important, and and thank you for doing that. I think that's important. I think the the good news is we we actually have um, a a new uh, and improved, I think, arguably a prohibited transaction exemption here. I think we've got some better structure for people. I think it's extended protection to that whole rollover process. I think it is, you know, sort of back. I mean, arguably, it's at least level the playing field between plan advisors and and advisors who operate outside the plan. And to your point, it might even have worked to the advantage of, of retirement plan advisors. So, um, you know, that all all seems well and good. Um, you know, I'm inclined to think at the end of this, um, you remember the old uh, Ebert, Siskel and Ebert show, and they'd talk about a movie and they'd rate it, and then at the end of it, there'd be a thumbs up or thumbs down. So uh, is it safe to say you'd give this one a thumbs up? Yeah, I, you know, the, uh, the concept, certainly. Uh, it, 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 is it designed to improve rollover advice? Is it designed to protect against conflicts of interest? Yes, I, I, I think the concept is right. Uh, I think that uh, it's it's. I, I think that the conditions are going to be burdensome, but once they're in place and people are operating with them, that that it, it'll become more routine part of doing business. So, the, the the it's going to be a rough year, year and a half to get there, but once we're there, yeah, I think it's going to work pretty nicely. Cool. Well, and as we acknowledged earlier, we're we're not. We've got a good starting point. We can come out of the starting blocks. We've got a date out there in the future to look for, and we know that there's more than likely going to be some more change come down the path, but um, but hopefully we'll have a chance to see it coming um, and to comment on it and uh, and help it be a positive uh, for all involved. So good deal. I agree. I agree, Evan. They, they, yeah, I do think, uh, you know, there isn't – they have the uh, – uh, President Biden hasn't nominated an assistant secretary for the Employee Benefit Security Administration yet. It's not confirmed. Uh, but once we have that person in place, uh, then I think we'll see that, that down-the-road process pick up. Uh, I think we're going to focus on, for example, uh, we'll see that 84-24, which is an exemption for fiduciary advice for insurance products, 
will get modified to be much more similar, but not the same as 2020-02. And so, yes, this is we're at the be we're pretty much at the beginning of this story in terms of the Biden administration's activity on the fiduciary front and on the conflicts of interest front. And now we just have to worry about things like OESG, and um, they had some new cybersecurity um, guidelines out this morning. So we'll we'll have certainly something to talk about in the future. That's oh, yeah. it for us today. Um, have a great one. Thank you.